Amen. Thanks for that, Simon. Well, if you have your Bible there, please do turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9, the passage Heather read from us earlier, and follow along with me. I've preached from, uh, I think, pretty much all the New Testament Palm Sunday texts, and when I came to sit and think about what I would do this evening, I thought, I've never gone back to the, the source um, of Zechariah 9, where so many of the New Testament authors said in Jesus' entrance on that first Palm Sunday into Jerusalem on the donkey, they were fulfilling Zechariah 9. So I thought this evening it would be good to go back and let's look at this prophecy where 500 years before Jesus entered into the scene of human history, Zechariah wrote of his coming into Jerusalem riding humbly and lowly on this donkey. As I studied uh, for this sermon over the past couple of weeks, I've been absolutely blown away with what is in Zechariah 9. I don't think I've ever really slowed down long enough to really look at it carefully. And my goodness, it tells us a lot more uh, about Jesus than him just entering in to Jerusalem on a donkey. There are great treasures here in this chapter for us. So really follow along with me uh, as we look at them together just now. On that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, the gospel writers record for us that the crowds waved palm branches in jubilation. They laid down their cloaks on the road as a kind of red carpet for Jesus, and they rejoiced with an exuberance that could not be contained. In fact, the religious leaders actually tried to contain it. They said, Jesus, tell your disciples to calm down. And Jesus, do you remember what he said? If they don't praise, the very rocks will cry out. Jesus said, this is a moment for joy. And the question I want to consider together this evening is, what did they see in this moment of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on the donkey that led to such an expression of joy? Why did Jesus say this was a moment that called for such joy? And I believe the heart of the answer is found in the hope they had that came out of passages like the one we're in this evening, Zechariah 9, that a king would come and he would bring great hope. He would accomplish amazing things. He would liberate us from our deepest oppressors. And because in this moment of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, they believed that the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah were coming to pass, they rejoiced. So let's look at this passage, Zechariah 9, in its historical context and see those reasons to rejoice that they saw on that first Palm Sunday. In Zechariah 9, Zechariah is bringing a word of hope from God to a people in distress. At that time in the 6th century BC, the people of God were back in Israel after a period of exile outside of the land. But their day-to-day lives back in their homeland 
were fragile. They were economically struggling. They felt insecure because of the wars going on in the neighboring regions around them. Their government wasn't really functioning. They lived with promises as God's people in a great God, hope and faith in a great God. But their lived out day-to-day reality was depleting the reality of their faith and hope in God. I'm sure many of us can relate to this. That could be a description in many ways of our circumstances today. Economically, times are tough. There's insecurity because of war in Europe. Our government isn't really functioning. We have incredible promises and hope in a God who is sovereign and who reigns, and yet sometimes our day-to-day reality can feel so far removed from the faith we profess. Well, into this situation in the sixth century, God speaks a word of hope through Zechariah of a coming king who would bring salvation, accomplish great things, bring deep peace, and who would change his people's circumstances in a way they could never anticipate. This chapter, Zechariah 9, is designed to supercharge our hope. It was designed to do that for them then, and it has been written down for us now to supercharge our hope in these days that can sometimes feel a bit gloomy. We are those who read this passage now as fulfilled in Christ. And so instead of looking forward to and anticipating that first coming of the king who would bring joy and salvation, we can now look back and appreciate how Jesus brought this joy and salvation. But remember, we're still a people anticipating another return, another coming of Christ. And so in a very real way, the anticipatorial hope is still here for us. So what we're going to do is work down through the passage and we're going to see, I want us to see three reasons to rejoice in the coming King, King Jesus. First, Zechariah points to the beauty of his character, the beauty of the coming King's character. Then he focuses on the benefits of his accomplishments. And thirdly, he focuses on the blessing of his victorious second coming. So let's look at each of these and pray that even now that the Lord will be renewing our hope in the coming king at this side of the cross. So first let's look at what Zechariah speaks Uh, says about the beauty of this coming king's character. Verse nine begins with this clear call to God's people not just to rejoice in the midst of their challenges, but to rejoice greatly. The language there where God speaks of the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem, it's an affectionate way for God as a father to speak of the future generations 
of his people. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Israel's governance at the time had pretty much been decimated by invasion and exile. We can imagine today the challenge that Ukraine will face as a country when they rebuild after this invasion and war. That's where Israel were, trying to rebuild their country after an invasion and war. What structures they had now that they were back in their land were fragile, and they were still subordinate to the higher authorities all around them. In that day, it was the Persian Empire. But here God speaks of a day when a new king will be installed over his people, and this coming king's rule would be sovereign and universal. You would expect for this king to have such a powerful and dominant rule, you would expect, therefore, that he would come with great military might, might that could not be withstood. But the description of the character of the king that follows is so surprising because we'll see that he's not marked as one coming with great military might, but coming with a beautiful character, characterized by humility. And that is how he will bring this incredible sovereign reign of peace about. First, we're told that this coming king's character will be righteous. In a world of corrupt and selfish leaders, this king will govern his people with integrity and justice. He will be trustworthy. He will love the good. He will oppose the bad. This king that is coming will be a good king. And it is so encouraging to know that this passage is ultimately about Jesus Christ. That's our king. That's his character. In 1 John 1.5, we read, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Christians, we live our lives as members of the kingdom of this trustworthy and righteous king. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, there is an invitation to you to come and to live in the goodness of this sovereign's reign. So first we're told that this coming king will be righteous there in verse nine. But second, we're told that he will be a king who comes with salvation. He's described as having salvation. This is the king who comes into the world to save his people from their worst forms of oppression, from all the consequences of fallenness and rebellion against God in this world. In Matthew's gospel, we're told in that opening chapter that Jesus, the promised king, was given the name Jesus because it pointed to the truth that he had come into the world to save his people from their sins, to bring salvation. 
Well, the third thing we're told then, moving on quickly about this coming king's character, is that he will be a humble king. The very act of the incarnation of the Son of God was an incredible act of humility. Jesus took on flesh, went low to save his people. In the only place where Jesus spoke of his own character in the Gospels, Matthew 11, 28, 29, Jesus described himself as being gentle and lowly in heart. This means Jesus is someone we can be real with. Someone who is approachable, who invites us to come to him to find rest and security. Someone who doesn't want us to feel like we have to pretend in front of him. Someone who doesn't want us to feel like we have to earn his pleasure. He wants us to come humbly to him, the humble one who is gentle and lowly in heart so that we can find rest for our souls. Well, Zechariah tells us that this lowliness and humility would be exemplified in the king coming to his people riding on a donkey. Now, who could have imagined how this would be fulfilled? Who could imagine or even think, Zechariah, what are you saying? This king's going to come on a, riding on a donkey? What? Well, this, as fulfilled in Jesus, we know this speaks to us of the unpretentious nature of the Messiah's reign. Jesus would be a king who would come alongside his people, who would identify with them. He would come as one who was gentle and lowly. So the first thing Zechariah wants us to see in this prophecy, the first reason we're given to rejoice here in the coming king, is by beholding his beautiful character. We are to ponder the beauty of his character, his righteousness, his bringing salvation, his humility that would accomplish an incredible sovereign and universal reign. And I want to encourage us this evening, just for a few moments, to never underestimate the power of just beholding the glory of Jesus' character as laid out in the Bible. John Owen, that great English theologian, has written, beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges believers are capable of in his world. It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we're spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. That's why it's good to set aside often time to read the Gospels and read passages like this to just ponder the beauty of the character of Jesus because by faith we believe that by beholding the glory of Jesus, our faith is strengthened. So I'd encourage you even this week as we build up towards Easter weekend, slow yourself down a bit and just think how good it is that Jesus is described to us in the Old Testament in this way. A way to do this can be to think about if he wasn't like this, 
how awful would it be? So for example, imagine if Jesus wasn't humble, but was a really proud, obnoxious king, how awful would that be? If Jesus wasn't righteous, we couldn't trust him. Let this be certainly one of your reasons to rejoice when all around is gloomy. I have a great king who reigns over this kingdom that I belong to. That's a reason to rejoice this Palm Sunday. Well, the second reason laid out for us here is in verses 10 to 13. And Zechariah wants us to focus now, not just on the beauty of Jesus' character, but on the benefits of his accomplishments. We're told of three glorious accomplishments that all flow from this king's work of bringing salvation. And each of these accomplishments benefit his people in wonderful, tangible ways. The first benefit of this king's accomplishments is that he will establish, we're told here, a kingdom of peace. This king will not need the weapons of military might to establish his reign of peace. In verse 10, we read of him doing away with chariots and war horses and battle bows. We read that he will speak peace to the nations. Don't miss that. He will speak peace to the nations. He will extend his peaceful kingdom through the proclamation of his word. And his word is a word of peace. And when we hear that word peace, we're to think of a lot more than just the absence of strife. This is peace, the realization of shalom, that rich Old Testament word that speaks of human flourishing that flows from the inside out that always begins with the experience of being made right with God. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1 we read that we in Christ have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at the universal reach of this kingdom proclaimed at the end of verse 10 of Zechariah 9. We read there that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. That is a peace and rest that every single human being in the world today longs for. And Jesus said, or God's word tells us here that his rule shall be from sea to sea and his rule will extend by him speaking peace to the nations. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in the gospel going forward across the nations as peace with God is proclaimed. The kingdom of God extends across the nations and this universal kingdom of peace stretches from sea to sea, 
and to the ends of the earth. So the first benefit of his accomplishments is he is going to extend, set up and establish and extend a kingdom of peace. The second benefit is that he will set prisoners free. In verse 11, we read, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. For those reading this then, this meant looking back to the covenants God established with Abraham and Moses. But now we know this ultimately points to the new covenant that was established through Christ's blood. In John 8, 36, we, we read of Jesus, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from the waterless pit of sin and condemnation and hell itself. This coming king would set prisoners free. That is a great word. That is a great encouragement. And those back then could only have some sort of hope of what that might mean. They thought it meant physical liberation from the oppressors, the governments who were over them, who were making life difficult for them. But that, that the true fulfillment of this is that Jesus liberated his people from something far worse, from the oppression of sin and our slavery in it. Then in verse 12, there's a wonderful statement that speaks ultimately of the benefit of Christ setting us free, uh, another benefit of, of Christ setting us free from the pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. In this book, God is depicted as the stronghold of his people. In chapter two, verse five, there's a wonderful word where God speaks of himself as a wall of fire around his people. This invitation to return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, speaks to us of the fact that we are not just set free from sin so that we can live free of sin. We're set free from sin so that we can be reconciled to God and enjoy living in the goodness of a close walk with him. God is the stronghold that we are invited to return to. We're liberated from sin to be reconciled to God. Prisoners once without hope, now called prisoners of hope, called to a new and living hope, promised incredible blessing. That is what is indicated then in the language of verse 12. It speaks of God restoring to his people in the future a double portion. This speaks of the incredible blessing that those liberated from sin will enjoy in Christ. And if that's not enough, we're given this third accomplishment now of uh, the coming king's work in verse 13. We've acknowledged that he will establish a kingdom of peace. He will set prisoners free. And now in verse 13, we read that he will make his people instruments in his hand to extend his rule and reign across the nations. Now, this language is a bit strange, so let me explain it a bit. In verse 13, we read, I've bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Grace, and wield you like a warrior's sword. That's kind of hard to understand what's going on there, but let's think about it for just a moment. Judah was the name uh, given to God's people who lived in the southern part of Israel. 
Ephraim was given to the name of God's uh, people who lived in the northern part of Israel. Down through Old Testament history, there was a rift that happened in Israel that separated northern Israel from southern Israel. Now, we don't have to think too hard for something comparable. We live in Northern Ireland. In our history, 1921, wasn't it the Northern Ireland Act established that divided Northern Ireland from Southern Ireland? So we've got the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Well, here, when Jesus speaks of Judah as his bow and Ephraim set in as an arrow, it's a picture of unity. God bringing together a divided people and using them as battle instruments in his hands to extend his kingdom of peace. He's going to in some way work through the unity of his people to extend his kingdom of peace. At the end of verse 13, he's going to wield his people like a warrior's sword. The point here is that God's weapon to extend his kingdom of peace and liberation is his people working together in unity. That is a powerful picture. It's fulfilled today in a united church working together so that we will bring the gospel of peace to the nations. Though we may have sectarianism in Northern Ireland, it is lovely that the church of Jesus Christ is united. Whether you're a believer from Dublin or Wexford or Cork or Belfast or Limavady, wherever, if you're truly in Christ, all of those tribal markers are subordinated underneath are in Christ unity. And what a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ called to work together and God will wield his church across the nations to extend the blessings of his kingdom of peace across the nations. And there's a few things that are really encouraging here and I think I just want us to remember. First, this tells us that God is the one at work in and through his people to extend his kingdom. Sometimes we think that it's all down to us. We're the ones who have to minister in our own strength. We're like the ax that believes it has to wield itself. You imagine an ax sitting there and say there's something needs chopped down and we start to look at that big tree and think, oh boy, how am I gonna do that? we start to think that it's down to our strength that we have to see Belfast one for Christ. It's down to our strength that we want to see the kingdom extended across the nations. And so we put ourselves under all kinds of pressure to get the gospel out there. Now, of course, there's an impetus, there's a, an imperative, there is a call to get the gospel out there, but we can, we can carry that burden in a way that's unhealthy. We have to remember we're like the ax lifeless, 
Good for nothing unless the Lord lifts us up and wheels us to chop down what he wants chopped down. So we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We must never forget that. This balance is communicated so nicely by the Apostle Paul in, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Listen to how he holds together this burden, this call he has to work hard for the gospel, but then also to remember that, that it's ultimately God's strength at work in him. Colossians 1:28, Paul writes, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think there is just the most beautiful balance there in Paul saying, I'm toiling, I'm working hard, I'm doing all I can to give myself to this area of service that God has entrusted to me. I'm working hard in it. But not as if it's all down to my strength and my effort to make it all happen. He is working. His energy is powerfully at work within me. And we must remember that. His power works through us to bring his kingdom, to extend his kingdom of peace to the nations. He works through us. And one of the ways he brings forth that blessing is through a people working together in unity. You just think of Psalm 133. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands his blessing, even life evermore. So that is a call to us to continue to prioritize unity in our church family for the sake of being effective, sharp instruments in the Redeemer's hands as he works to extend his kingdom of peace here in Belfast in and through us. We have a responsibility, yes, but always remembering it's his power at work through us that will accomplish anything of eternal gain. So, that's the second reason to rejoice that Zechariah points us to here. We are to rejoice first in the beauty of the coming king's character, we are to rejoice then in these wonderful benefits of his accomplishments. And then thirdly and finally, we are to rejoice in verses 14 to 17 in the blessing of his glorious, hope-filled return. Verses 14 to 17 here seem to jump forward to a time called that day in verse 16. You see the start of verse 16? On that day, the Lord their God will save them. And in the Old Testament, we hear God speaking of this day when God will bring this present age to a close at the renewal of the heavens and earth. The New Testament calls this day the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. And it seems clear here in verses 14 to 17 that Zechariah is now speaking of the second coming of Jesus, not his first coming as he entered into Jerusalem humbly on the donkey, but his second coming when he will appear and that appearance will be as lightning, we're told, in verse 14. 
it will be accompanied by the sounding of a trumpet. All the language that the New Testament uses to speak of the second coming of Jesus. And three further blessings are clearly presented for God's people in that day when Christ will come again. First, we're told in verse 15 that God's people in that day will be shielded from judgment by God. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them. So in that day when God comes to judge the earth, if we are in Christ, we will be protected by God, shielded from any wrath, nothing to fear of wrath because we have peace through Jesus. The second um, blessing presented here uh, on this day is that we will have joyful final victory over all enemies. We read there in verse 15, they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. This is speaking of God's people. They'll drink and roar as if drunk with wine, be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. All expressions of rebellion against God, all the enemies of this present evil age think sin, suffering, death represented here. All will be trampled under our feet fully and finally in Christ. And what an image is employed here. God's people will be rejoicing like drunk men. It's almost jarring, isn't it? It's like, whew, that's inappropriate. What a picture, but it's used by the Apostle Paul, for example, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, 18, in a slightly different way. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the reason he draws that comparison, I think, is he said, you know, when you're drunken and rowdy with wine, well, that can lead to carelessness, but when you're full of the Spirit, that leads to joy and exuberance that people would look at you and think you're a bit crazy because you're so excited, so happy in the Lord. You'll be like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar, an overflowing bowl in the place of worship. It's a lovely picture again. We'll be like fountains overflowing, like bowls overflowing. Our cup overflows, Psalm 23, with joy because of the Lord who is our shepherd. So on that day, we're told we'll be shielded from the judgment of God. We will have joyful final victory over all the worst enemies of sin and fallenness that this world has to afford. And then third, we're told, finally, we will be at home and made beautiful by the Lord's grace. What a stunning picture the last two verses of this passage leaves us with. I wonder if you ever noticed it. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his bounty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is a picture of the church at rest under the shepherd's care, shining like jewels on a crown. That's the saints made beautiful, finally and fully sanctified. No more battling with our indwelling sin. It's hard to conceive, isn't it, of heaven as a world of love and a world without sin. This closing picture of the flock of God's people shining like jewels in a crown, flourishing with grain and wine, 
celebrating the greatness and goodness of the Lord. This is a picture of everything good that we were created to enjoy. And we will say together on that day, we will be the people saying, how great is God's goodness. How great is his beauty. And we will shine like jewels in a crown. We'll shine, remember, like the moon, not the sun. The sun generates its own glory. That's God. Our God generates his own glory. We will absorb it and reflect it. Ours are reflected beauty. His, the source of beauty. So there we go, Zechariah 9. Why were all those crowds rejoicing on that first Palm Sunday? Why did the religious leaders try to contain them as if they were like drunk men? Because they saw in this coming king the fulfillment of the hope of this passage. Here he is. This is the king. We see the beauty of his character. We know what has been spoken of what he will accomplish. And we know the incredible hope there is ahead for us because of him. So, we're invited to join the crowd on that first Palm Sunday to rejoice now in the king who came, who accomplished, who returned to his father, and now we wait again the fullness of the glory of this coming king. And that day where we will rejoice, where we will shine, and where we will enjoy the shalom that we were created to enjoy. So let's remember in a world where a lot feels gloomy right now, Palm Sunday and how it was fulfilled and will be fulfilled gives us these wonderful reasons to rejoice. And let's be the people who enter and live in the goodness of this story, this story where we are proclaiming the incredible message of hope in a gloomy and dark world. Let's pray together. Father, there's just so much here in, in Zechariah 9 where we've, we've only thought it was the passage about Jesus on the donkey. Oh, there's so much more. The beauty of his character, the benefits of his accomplishments, and the blessing of his second coming. I pray tonight that these reasons to rejoice would stay with us through this week so that though now we taste the taste of fallenness and brokenness in our world, we have these reasons to rejoice that this world is not all there is and that this fallenness and brokenness will not have the last word. And Lord, we just pray tonight once again that if there's anyone here and they don't know Jesus, that they'd they would join this song of rejoicing, put their hope in this promised king. 
And that for us who know Jesus, that you would stir us again, that this week we would, we would rediscover these reasons to rejoice this Palm Sunday. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond and sing Immortal Honors, Rest on Jesus' Head, this hymn that speaks to us of the sustenance that we know in this promised king. Let's stand together and praise the Lord in closing.
the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.